How are we doing tonight? Am I feeling good? Yeah, yeah. Wednesday night. Turn up. We got handouts. There's two handouts. One of them's front and back. Uh, grab, grab both of them. Uh, you really only need one of them, but I thought the other one was pretty cool and you might benefit from having. Uh, I stole it from the ESV Study Bible, and I make no apologies for that. Uh, what's that, Jay? I did. There, there is credit on that. I don't have to apologize. You're right. Thank you. Uh, also, we finally, I finally ordered those books that I've been talking about. Uh, they're in the resource room. They're called Biblical Theology. Nice little purple book. See how small that is? So small. Perfect. Uh, I encourage you, if any of this has just interested you or has maybe been helpful for you as you think about uh, well, your own study of God's Word, but especially if you're uh, the kind of person who likes to uh, lead Bible studies, or maybe you're a small group leader, or uh, you've got a group of folks that you meet with and you're just reading the Bible together, um, this, this might be a really helpful book for you. There's a lot of little side paragraphs and notes in there specifically for teachers and preachers uh, that I think would be helpful in that regard. But also, like, if you're a parent and you're just wanting to think through, like, how can I walk my child through Scripture in a way that helps them to understand like the big picture of the Bible, you might find that book pretty helpful too. Uh, it's $5. It's in the resource room. Um, I hope it is uh, helpful for you. And there's so many other books too that would be really good to read if you're interested in just learning more about biblical theology. And I'd be glad to give you some recommendations of some really helpful uh, books that are all, all across the spectrum, from easy reads to more difficult kind of academic sort of stuff, but there's a lot of really good resources out there. So let me pray for us before we get into our topic tonight. Um, Father, I do pray that you would minister to us now by your word, that uh, amid all the, and there is so much to talk about, but amid all the references and, and uh, concepts and and books and, and just through the whole breadth of scripture that we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, I pray that above all else you would cause us, your people, to rejoice in your word and to delight in your sovereign goodness to us and revealing yourself to us through, this, uh, through these 66 books that speak so clearly of the gospel and that together uh, help us to really understand what it is that you've done in the world through, through history and, and even in the minutia of our own lives, Lord. Um, we thank you for your word and ask that you would bless us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So biblical theology, uh, we introduced this a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> it's a way of, uh, it's a discipline of, of understanding scripture, of, of trying to synthesize all of scripture uh, by looking at different themes or maybe tracing a particular um, idea through all of Scripture, or maybe just through one particular book of the Bible. It, it's really, honestly, and this may sound silly, but it's, it's kind of like reading 101. How do you get from the first page of a book to the last page? Well, if it's a coherent, cohesive whole, which is exactly how the Bible uh, comes to us, uh, then, then there, there are themes, there are ideas, there are points throughout. Uh, and as you go through the Bible, the, the, the little pieces that you pick up along the way allow you to see more and more as you go. It allows you to go back to the very start where you, where you began with all the information from the end where you finished, and it allows you to understand those things better. Um, to give you kind of an idea, and this is a painful one, uh, I was thinking about this today. So right now, the Braves are, uh, have two wins to the Dodgers' one win in the, uh, in the NLCS, which would sound good to a lot of people. Wow, you got two wins to the other team's one win. In a, in a, in a seven-game series, all you got to do is win four times. You're halfway there. What, what is there to complain about? Except the mind of a person who understands biblical theology knows that the Braves have been up two wins to one in the NLCS against the Dodgers actually within the last year. And because of this knowledge, it taints everything that I understand, or I'm speaking for myself now, it taints everything you could understand about what it means to be up two to one. Two to one is a good thing, but when you know that you were two to one last year and you end up losing the whole thing, it has a weird feeling. 
it feels ominous and kind of foreboding. And you feel like the, the, the walls, you know what I'm saying, the walls are just crashing in around you. That's biblical theology. It's more hopeful than that. But biblical theology says, hey, I've, I've been here before. I've seen this before. What, what does this mean? What's different here? What, where can I maybe find some encouragement, some hope? Where do I need to see warnings? Uh, that, that's how biblical theology carries us through. It helps us to draw these sorts of comparisons. So tonight, I want us to look at one particular theme that's really just, it's very prominent in the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's so prominent that I regretted even picking this topic tonight because I realized there's just no way we can cover all the things that we need to cover tonight. Uh, but I, I hope, and my goal tonight, is that you would walk away from this, not necessarily with this airtight argument for how the theme of God's temple is woven throughout Scripture, but rather that you would walk away joyful, seeing how the Lord has superintended even history and the interpretation of history in a way that points us to the gospel. The Bible is a coherent whole. It is a story. Uh, yeah, there's different books, different genres, different authors. They're written at different times and places by different people. Uh, but I want us to understand, and honestly, I think one of the best arguments for the validity of God's word, uh, of, of the Bible as God's word, of the Bible as inerrant, inspired by God, is the coherence of Scripture. I just think that's really helpful for us to understand. So if nothing else, I hope that you, you walk away from that, or from tonight, with that in, in the back of your mind. How does Scripture incorporate the temple theme in the Bible? Uh, if, you're, if you're thinking of the temple, uh, where, what, what books of the Bible might you immediately gravitate toward? I say, hey, tell me about the temple of God. Where do you maybe flip to first? Okay, Leviticus. Okay, the tabernacle. Where's the tabernacle? Leviticus. Is it anywhere else? Exodus. You said tabernacle. That's not the same word as temple. Where's the temple? Does anybody know? It's okay. Just throw a guess. What was that? Okay, this is the Kings. All right, Book of Kings. Uh, there, there's a lot of places you can go. And, and like Carolyn pointed out, there's actually different words that you might want to, to turn to to understand some of these concepts. Okay, the temple and the tabernacle are, are two different things in Scripture, but they help us to understand each other. Well, I want us to start actually in Genesis, which is a good place to start. It's where the Bible tends to begin. Uh, and so let's look at just seeing Genesis. Now, we've actually talked a little bit about a lot of these sort of ideas already. Two weeks ago, I spoke at, uh, a lot about creation, which obviously Genesis is a major uh, influence there. Uh, Tyler last week mentioned something that I'm going to highlight again tonight about the role of Adam in the Garden of Eden and his purpose there in creation. Um, but I, I feel like it's, it's worth bringing up. So in, in Genesis, we have the garden. There's no temple. There's no tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle, the tent, the meeting place of God, that doesn't come until Exodus. It's really fleshed out in, in the later books of the law. Uh, but in, in Eden, you have this place where God's presence dwells, and it's the garden. Right? Genesis 3.8 points out that Adam and Eve walk with the Lord. His presence is in the garden with them. When they sin, uh, they hear the Lord walking through the garden, and they run and hide themselves from him. So the garden is clearly this, this place where God's presence dwells. Now, we can get into all the metaphysics of that and how that works and what that means and how God can dwell in a garden before Jesus took on flesh and God is spirit and, oh my, what's going on? I don't want to talk about that. It's the place where God dwells. It's the place where his people have communion with him. In a lot of ways, I mean, that, that really is how you can boil down our understanding of the tabernacle. It's how you can summarize our understanding of the temple and frankly, it's how you can summarize, and this is my point, it's how you can summarize the message of much of the Bible. God's presence with his people. How do we get there? 
How did we mess it up? The, the Bible is, is constantly hearkening back to, to moments like this in, in Genesis. So the garden, it's, it's where God's presence is among his people, who at this particular time are Adam and Eve. What are they commanded to do? And Tyler mentioned this last week, but I want to go back to it because I want to really make it clear here. And if you missed last week, this will be helpful to know. If you turn to Genesis 2, chapter, uh, or chapter 2, verses 15, and 17, 15 through 17, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And we're all pretty familiar with that passage, or I imagine that's something, you know, something like that goes down in Genesis pretty early on. It kind of sets up some major events that follow very shortly after. But I want to highlight two verbs there. God tells Adam to, to, um, to work and keep the garden. He's supposed to cultivate it, to work in it, to guard it. In fact, later on in the Old Testament, if you turn to Numbers chapter 3, the same language is used. But this time it's not used to describe Adam and Eve, their role in the garden. It's instead used to describe uh, the priests who oversee uh, the, the tabernacle of the Lord. So listen to this, chapter 3 of Numbers, verses 7 and 8. Uh, well, I'll back up to verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him, and they shall keep guard over him, That's the same idea behind the word used in Genesis that we just read of keeping. Adam was told to keep. The Levites are told to keep guard over over, over Aaron and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, which is another way of understanding the tabernacle. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. You hear that language echoed, minister, guard, keep guard. These are the same words used in in Genesis to describe Adam's responsibilities over the garden. I think minister there corresponds to, um, to work. And so Adam's responsibilities in the garden, and this is not accidental, you understand. Moses, who was there to receive these instructions about the tabernacle, is also then writing Genesis, and he goes, hey, you know what? This all fits. Adam's role in the garden is not different from the role of the Levites over the tabernacle. So you've got a guy in the presence of God intended to keep and guard that place, to, to work and keep that place. Let's keep going. I hope you're seeing there's some similarities here. That's what I want to show you. There's similarities. There are, there are shadows of things to come, even as you're reading Genesis. So if you keep going, you get to the fall, chapter 3. Adam and Eve utterly fail to fulfill this role of theirs. Instead of keeping and guarding, Adam allows the serpent to come in with all of his lies and deception. And and in that moment, Adam and his wife fall into sin, and everything falls apart. And so what, what comes of this, what happens from this point on, is that Adam and Eve are actually cast out of the garden. They're put out of the presence of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 24, again, we're in Genesis here. In chapter 3, verse 24, Uh, you you see what what comes of this. The Lord drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's that word again, guard. Only this time, the priest in the garden is not the one who's able to do it. In fact, he's the one being guarded against. He cannot enter into the place where God's presence dwells. 
and, and in his stead has put someone else to guard this space. He guards an entrance that is notably facing east, and we'll get to that in a minute. But he guards this entrance, these angels, these cherubim, they guard this entrance to protect, really to protect Adam and Eve, but also to preserve the holiness of, of God's dwelling. Uh, that, that language, or rather these cherubim, they show up actually again and again and again. They show up with the tabernacle being, being put together, in particular the Ark of the Covenant of God, which is right in the middle of the tabernacle, in the most holy place where God's glory dwells. You have these cherubim that's, that, that basically stand watch. They're on the, the covering of the Ark. And so then later on, actually, when Solomon erects his temple in Jerusalem, this permanent dwelling place, this permanent glorious building, cherubim feature pretty prominently in that place as well. What I I want you to understand, and I realize some of this can seem kind of like, whoa, this is like the Da Vinci Code. That's not what I want you to feel. What I want you to see, though, is that the Bible is actually pretty consistent across the board. There, there is, a, there is a, a consistent pattern that develops here. And, and unfortunately, it's a pattern of God's presence being now guarded, separating man from God to protect mankind and to preserve and revere the holiness of God. So that, that's where things go. Now, I, I want to take a look, though, at one thing that really drives this theme going beyond the fall, especially in the book of Genesis. If you turn to Genesis 1, verse 28, the Lord, he, he says, he issues a, a mandate, a, a blessing uh, to Adam and Eve. This is before the fall. So this, this really should define the, the purpose uh, of mankind. This is God's vision for what Adam and Eve should have been or should be. And then consequently, this is his vision for, for all people. Uh, this, is, this is his purpose in creating us. But in Genesis 1, 28, he commissions Adam and Eve. It says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's interesting, there's a lot of interesting things there, but what's interesting about this that I want to point out here is that Adam and Eve were already told and commissioned to, to guard this garden. Or at least that's, that's what we find out here uh, is that in chapter 2, is that that's, that's what Adam and Eve's purpose was, to guard and keep the garden. And yet that's not at odds with this same commission to subdue the earth, to fill the earth. What I want you to understand is that these two things are working in tandem. And I think all of Scripture is really pointing to the fulfillment of these two ideas as they come together, which is that God's people are meant to be in his presence, to minister to him and to one another. But this doesn't just stop in one little tract of land in the middle of the Middle East. But it is intended, in fact, to fill the earth and to have dominion over all of creation, not just this space here in the Garden of Eden. Do you see that? You see, you see what I'm saying? The, the Bible is presenting, is, is fleshing this very thing out from this point to Revelation 22. And, and that's what I, I want to show you here as we keep going. So, so the Lord gives Adam and Eve this commission. Be, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And they pass it on, the Lord rather, passes it along to all of their descendants. If you continue reading in Genesis, you find out that this is the same sort of thing the Lord says to Noah when he recreates the earth. He commissions Noah with the same commission as though Noah is the one who picks up the mantle of Adam and Eve. And then later on, he gives the same commission to Abraham. And he gives the same commission to Isaac. And he gives the same commission to Jacob. And he gives the same commission to all of his sons. And and you see how this goes. By implication, he gives the same commission to all of God's people through the ages. That they would fill the earth and subdue it. That they would be fruitful and multiply. 
that as, as priests in God's holy presence, they would, they would ultimately envelop the earth and make the earth the place where God's glory dwells. And this, this carries on. You see little glimpses of it. Every time we meet a new character, even in Genesis, what do they do? They find a place without fail. They pitch a tent at some point. And another word for tent is tabernacle. I mean, it's the same word. It's not another word. It's the same word. They pitch a tent and they worship the Lord. They make an altar wherever it is that they, they plant themselves. It's like throughout the book of Genesis, the patriarchs are constantly remembering, reminding themselves and all their descendants of what they've left, of what they've lost, but also of the hope of the commission that the Lord has given them, that they might, in fact, one day fulfill what the Lord set forward in Genesis 1 and 2. So this, this idea of temple, it goes beyond just the building and the tabernacle and and all these instructions that are really hard and you get bogged down in your Bible reading plan and you never get past Exodus 26. Uh, this, is, this is integral to Scripture. It's helpful for us to, to flesh this out. Let's keep going. If you, turn, if you go to Exodus, well, you don't have to turn there right now, but, but as you get into Exodus, again, written by the same, same man, you understand? I mean, he's got... I mean, and, and, and as if it needs to be Moses in both cases, it's, it's the same author. The Holy Spirit has inspired these words. But I, I want you to see and, and just understand, like, there's a, there's a mind behind what is written here. And as you get into Exodus, you see the tabernacle, right? The tent where God dwells with his people. Now, why is it a tent? Why isn't it some fancy building? Because at this point in history, God's people are um, between jobs, they're between houses. They're, they're, they've left Egypt, and they're moving to the promised land, the place where the Lord has sworn he will dwell among them and with them. He'll be their God. They'll be his people. Okay, in the interim, is the Lord just waiting for them over there? Is the Lord cheering them on from, from Egypt? No, he, he's going to go with them. His presence is going to dwell among them. This is the first time this has happened since the garden. The Lord's going to dwell with his people, but they're always on the move. They're nomadic. So the Lord says, you know, I can do that. I want you to build me a tent too. And I'll have a tent right in the middle of your camp. You guys have your tents. You got your utensils. You got your bowls. You need lamps. You got your tables. You got something to wash your hands with. You got, uh, you, you got a grill. You got all sorts of stuff set up in your tent. We're going to make me a tent. And the Lord, he, he gives them specific instructions. They build him a tent where he will dwell. And it also comes with all kinds of furniture and, and utensils and special things intended to help the Israelites interact with and be connected to the God who's dwelling among them. And so in God's dwelling place, he implements means where they can make sacrifices, where they can atone, where their sins can be atoned for, where they can be cleansed of their sin, or any impurity that reminds them of their failure and, 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 and imperfection and impurity and sinfulness and, and uncleanness. The Lord gives them a day of atonement where there would be a priest who'd go into this tent, but not just into the walls of the tent, right, because there'd be a and this is why I gave you that other, that other sheet, just to kind of give you a little visual there, because we're not going to read a lot from Exodus here. But the Lord would, would send, send someone in to that, that fence. They'd wash up, they'd, they'd make sacrifice, but they wouldn't just do that. They would also then go into that structure there in the middle of that courtyard where God, God's presence would increasingly dwell in holiness. So that if you walked in there, there were certain rituals you had to perform, certain things that were present. Oh, one thing I was reading about, I just never really thought about this. You know, there's an altar of incense in that, in that holy place. And the incense, what does incense do? Well, it smells good. And I think that's where I usually go. But I wasn't thinking about this until recently. That, that incense also creates smoke. And the smoke gives this barrier where it, it prevents you from being able to see clearly something. Well, when you get into the most holy place, you know what's there? The glory of God Almighty. And if you look on that, uh, you're, you're in some trouble. 
So, so you, having this perfect little smoke screen, there's even a veil there, but there's only one person who can even go in that space. It's the high priest. It's the, the holiest of holy guys. And he can go in there because he's done all these rituals that the Lord has set up for him to be able to go in and minister before the Lord, to represent the people of God before the Lord, and also to then communicate back to God's people what the Lord has for them. Moses shows us what this looks like in his own interactions with the Lord before the temple or before the tabernacle is built. And, and even as they continue wandering in the wilderness, Moses serves as this prototype of, of how to mediate between God and man. Um, but, but here in Exodus and throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, this is how God's people, or rather this is how God dwelled among God's people. And this is how they were also kept safe from that very presence. Because otherwise, his glory and his, his holiness would have vaporized them all. But the Lord, in his love for them, and his care and concern for them, and his deep compassion for them, provides this means where he can go with them to protect them, to provide for them, to lead them. But also in such a way where, where they can engage him in some way. The Lord's just incredibly kind to his people. You know, it says in the most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, the box containing the, the commandments of the Lord. And, uh, and if, you, if you touched the Ark or you treated it inappropriately, especially in the moving process, as a few guys find out, uh, you die. This is not to be trifled with. It's not to be treated flippantly. First Chronicles 28 points out that God thinks of the ark as like his, his footstool, his ottoman. And his throne is in heaven, and he rests his feet here on, on the ark like a stool. And, and it shows, this is, this, is real, this is the presence of the Lord. It bridges the gap between heaven and earth, between God and man. The Lord condescending to reveal himself to his people. All right, let's keep going, though. You've got the tabernacle. And one thing I feel is worth pointing out here that I've kind of glossed over um, briefly is that it, when, when it came to Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, they were to keep and to guard and to work in the garden. And immediately after the Lord gives them that instruction, he also gives them a command. Moses is clear. The Lord commanded them uh, in verse, uh, in I think it's chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 16. Uh, and the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That, that, that word command, that's an interesting word. And I, 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 I want to show you how this, this just, the Bible is just so full of these sorts of connections. The original priest, the original guy in, in the presence of the Lord is, is commissioned with this task to guard this space, and part of guarding this space means that he adheres to and obeys the Lord's commands. And then when you get to Exodus and you read about the tabernacle, you, you find out that there's a man chosen to guard and keep this space. And part of guarding and keeping the space, in fact, guarding and keeping the holiness of all of God's people is that they would obey God's commands. It's not a tree in the middle of the tent. It's an ark in the middle of the tent. But either way, you, you violate God's commands and, and you die. You see these connections? You see these parallels? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to make the case for you that, that the Bible works this way throughout. And these ideas come up again and again in some more or less explicit ways. If you look at Kings, literally the book of Kings, but also you think about Chronicles, you find that the temple. So eventually, God's people, they make it into the promised land. They're no longer wandering. They're not nomads. Uh, they, they don't really have a need for a tent because they don't need to pack God's house up anymore. Well, they settle in. They've got their main city now where all the tribes can kind of look to in Jerusalem. Uh, I, even construction is already underway for, for a house for the king. Uh, but David bemoans the fact that he has not made a house for the Lord. 
Solomon eventually accomplishes this. He, he makes this house. And in fact, when David talks to the Lord about it, the Lord, it, it seems like he does not quite care about the trappings of interior design that David is so worried about. The Lord says, man, I didn't ask you for a house. I'll tell you what, I'll do you one better. I'll make you a house, right? The, the Lord establishes David's kingdom and his throne. But eventually David and his son Solomon, they build a physical building where the Lord's glory can dwell. And they model it exactly after the tabernacle that the Lord had dwelled in all those years in the wilderness. Of course, this is going to be more, more permanent, and it's more grand, it's more glorious, it's, it's, just, it's, it's got more tied into it. Um, it's, it's meant to, be, to withstand the test of time. Well, that's the hope anyway. And God's presence gloriously dwells there. We find this out in, in 1 Kings chapter uh, 8. If you want to turn with me there. If not, that's fine. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, so this is kind of at the inauguration, the dedication of this temple, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Uh, Second Chronicles tells us something similar in chapter 7. What's interesting, and again, you talk about echoes in the Bible, this is, this is how biblical theology works. Exodus 40, if you turn there, now, this isn't talking about the temple. This is talking about the tabernacle of God. But Exodus 40, chapter, uh, well, chapter 40, verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Like, that's not, that's not accidental. That's not like an oversight or somebody was like, you know what, this actually is a better way to word it. I'm just going to use that, you know. Is it in biblical plagiarism? It's intentional because it shows us this connection. It says, okay, the tabernacle was, was exactly God's design. This was exactly God's purpose. The, the temple picks right up where the tabernacle left off. The temple is the place where God's glory dwells, where God dwells among his people, where we can come and find unity as a people, and where we orient and reorient our hearts toward the Lord through sacrifice and cleansing and through the mediation of his presence uh, with us. Now there's echoes of Eden even in, in the book of Kings as you might expect. Uh, if you read the description of the temple and all of its furnishings and the ornate nature of, of its decorations, the fabric that's used, the colors, the, the stones, the, the images that are used, it's something that we, again, we just kind of fly over because we're just trying to get through this chapter or series of chapters for the day. Uh, but you see images of trees. You see images of plants, of pomegranates, of of all kinds of growing things that grow in gardens. Um, because here again, the, the Garden of Eden is not out of sight. It's actually informing and helping us to understand what's taking place, even in, even in something like the temple. In the middle of this booming city, we, we are reminded of God's presence in the garden with Adam and Eve. There are precious stones there, I won't read these passages, uh, it's definitely worth looking at though, because you, you see again, I mean, in Genesis, there's these descriptions of gold and onyx and all kinds of precious materials that are found there. Well, yeah, when it comes to the temple, even when it comes to the tabernacle and the things that the priests would wear, there are these same sort of stones, all of these reminders. If you fast forward to Ezekiel, where the temple doesn't look like it should, because at this point in, in history, the temple is, is on its way out, if, if, if not outright destroyed over the generations around Ezekiel. Um, 
this permanent building, this place of God's glory, it's, a, it's eventually abandoned. Uh, and, and that is a real serious turning point in the narrative about how this temple works, how God's presence can be among his people. Uh, you had the tabernacle, you had the, the building. What happens when God voluntarily leaves? What would make God voluntarily leave his people? And so you, you look to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. And um, verse 19. The cherubim, you hear those guys? Lifted up their wings. This is a vision that Ezekiel is having. He, he's seeing something happening. happening. Uh, it's, a, it's a description of some incredible vision that he's got. The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out. No, who, who do the cherubim guard? If they leave, what are they leaving behind? Are they leaving anything behind? They stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. If you turn uh, even further over to chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, Ezekiel continues, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, just like it would have been over the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. Ezekiel is given this horrible sight of God's presence leaving the temple, leaving the city of God, uh, Jerusalem. What direction is all this facing? Did you catch that? East. East. Right? And when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, what direction were they sent? East. So here again, we, we've got this sort of renewed fall. Something has happened. The, the people intended to, to care for, to guard, to protect God's presence among his people, to minister to the Lord and be ministered to by him because of their idolatry, because of their sin, and if you just, you know, read the Old Testament, you can get an idea of what's going on here. Um, they, they see and witness the presence of the Lord, the glory of God, leave. It's, I mean, it's devastating. And this is how Ezekiel begins his, his book, but that's not the way he concludes it. Because in the end, the Lord returns gloriously. And if you look at Ezekiel chapter 43... He describes it for us. But I want you to consider as you're reading this, or as I read a little bit of it to you, uh, what is exactly is Ezekiel describing? Because you get the impression as you read that he's not talking about a mere building anymore. There's a shift that's taking place here. Something, something is going on that's bigger than the physical temple building. And so if you look at Ezekiel 43, starting in verse 1, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? The glory of the Lord filled the temple. If you keep going in verse 6, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. 
where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever." And so you get, a, you get a sense that there's something more to come with this temple. That the Lord's not done dwelling among his people, that he has a purpose in mind. In fact, as you keep going in Ezekiel 47, you find that there is a river that runs through or from this temple. And it's a river of healing and life. Uh, if you remember our description of the Garden of Eden, there's also a river, or it's, it's characterized by rivers. Life, it's the foundation, it's the source of life. And so we're getting this renewed Eden. And then it, it and so, you know, in, in Kings, you go, okay, that's the temple. In Ezekiel, you say, is that, is that the temple? That looks familiar. I, I recognize a lot of it. This looks a little different. But when you get to Revelation, you go, wait a second. Is this the, this is, this is the temple? It's beyond anything that God's people have experienced up to this point. It goes beyond anything that they could have imagined or dreamed. I put a little chart in here. I wanted to show you. I'm not going to read through it, but I think it's helpful. It shows these comparisons between Revelation and the description of the temple there and Ezekiel's description of this new temple. It seems like there is a lot of overlap here, as if Ezekiel and John are talking about the same place, because they are. Uh, and and it, it, it... there's just so much going on there. But once again, God's glory dwells among them. Um, and, and, and you get the picture in Revelation as you read it, that this tabernacle, it's not a building. In fact, even though John calls it a temple, what he describes is a city. And he describes the dimensions of the city. And the dimensions of the city are really interesting because they're an exact cube. Now, why does that matter? Well, the dimensions of the tabernacle, in particular, the dimensions of the most holy place in the tabernacle, are a cube. It's as if in John's mind, as he sees the new heavens and the new earth, this this temple of the Lord really encompass the city. He's making this connection, and he's making the connection for us to understand that there's coming a day where you don't, you don't have to go behind a curtain or inside some building or behind this veil to be ushered into the presence of the Lord. In fact, the vision that he has of the new heavens and the new earth is that we are, just by virtue of dwelling in the city, always dwelling in God's presence. There's no Moses. There's no... Well, there is a high priest, but there's no one that, there's nothing separating us between, but nothing separating God and man. But the very essence of the new heavens and the new earth is that we're dwelling in God's presence. So we see really the expansion of God's holy presence rather than protection from it. What's happened? How do we get to that? Um, let, me, let me change the question here very quickly. What does this mean for our theology and our understanding of the Christian life? I skipped over a pretty significant portion of Scripture, you understand. Uh, the Gospels give us a lot of missing pieces here. Uh, because in the Gospels, we, and, and in the New Testament letters especially too, we, we hear and we understand better what, what's going on, what brought about this change. Remember, in the first week we met when we talked about these themes and just biblical theology, how it works, one of the things I pointed out was that there's discontinuity and continuity. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but we should always be mindful when there's not. We should always be mindful of major changes that take place and what's driving those changes. Well, what, what happens between the tabernacle and the glorious temple of the Lord depicted in Revelation. Jesus. If 
if you can say he happened. Jesus, his person and his work, it, 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 it reinvents, it redefines everything that we, that we know or thought we knew. Because in Jesus, he becomes our access to God. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 14... The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You hear all those words. I mean, we've heard these words a thousand times tonight. But you hear them now in the context of the temple and you go, got it. What's happening here is is the temple of God is being made real to his people. And it's not, it's not just a place. In fact, it's a person. Jesus is the capital T, temple of God. He is where we go to, to meet with the Lord. He's the full radiance of God's glory. I, I encourage you to read these passages here in Colossians and especially in Hebrews. But Jesus is our new creation. He's the source of it in and of himself. You know, it's no mistake that in John 20, 15, when Jesus has been resurrected and uh, Mary, I believe, is there in the garden where he was buried and she is distraught. She can't find him and she sees a man and she assumes that this man is the gardener. Why does John care to tell us what Mary thought this man was? He could have just said, well, you know, and this guy showed up. I mean, we all know it's Jesus, but this guy shows up, and Mary didn't recognize him at first, but then she did. But she thinks he's a gardener. I mean, don't you think that there's maybe a little intention there in the way that that is spelled out for us? Once again, at the end of it all, we have a garden, and we have a man tending and keeping this garden. But the work of this man is the renewal of all things. The work of this man undoes the first gardener's horrible job. And the work of this man is, in fact, better above and beyond anything that the first gardener set forward to do. Jesus ushers in a new creation. He ushers in a new Eden. And in him, he is our new, really final, full expression of the idea of the temple of God, that we would dwell with him. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 points out that if you are in him, you yourself are a new creation. But Jesus describes himself as the temple of God several times in the Gospels. He talks about how, in fact, he's going to tear down the temple. He'll destroy the temple. He says, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And, of course, they all think he's talking about the the decaying, decrepit building that was there in the city at the time. But he's he's obviously not. He's, He's talking about himself. And it's what they all fail to understand. But it's what those who hope in Christ know personally, which is that Jesus is the dwelling place of God. And to walk with Jesus, to know him, is to commune with God. Finally, um, we, we learn, or not finally, there's so much we could talk about, but we learn also not just of the presence of God in Jesus, but of the expanding presence of God. You see how this develops through the Bible? It starts with a garden. It starts with a man and his wife. Over time, it becomes this very, very numerous people and a tent. And yeah, and then there's a temple. And they go to a promised land, and they, they fill that space, and they sort of subdue it, but they're pretty, pretty bad at that. Eventually, they get kicked out of the promised land. They get kicked out of that garden because they couldn't actually fulfill what they were tasked with doing. But then, when you get to Revelation, we're not talking about a garden. We're not talking about a city. We're not talking about a country. We're talking about, really, something that encompasses all of the universe. We're talking about the heavens and the earth. The temple of the Lord comes to define all of creation. It expands geographically in that sense, but, but the temple of God, the people of God, the presence of God among his people, uh, it also expands. It goes from just a man and a woman to a, a large nation of people to ultimately 
every man and woman that trusts in the Lord. Uh, a great multitude, as Revelation calls it. It encompasses not just a multitude of people, but a multitude of nations and tongues and people groups. And It goes beyond the descendants of, of Abraham. It, it encompasses anyone who trusts in Christ. And this, this, therefore, the presence of God, it expands corporately and it expands individually. And we find God's presence corporately as we gather together, as we as his church. The Bible also talks about the church as the temple of God, not the building, but the people collectively as the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. But then even individually, we as God's people, because we're in Christ, we, we also uh, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And it sets us apart, therefore, for ministry. I've gone over time, but I just want to conclude and, and encourage you to read these passages because I think it'll, it'll help you to flesh this out a little bit more. Um, but what I, what I really want you to see here is, is that the temple is, is more than just kind of this building. It's more than just this idea in the Bible. The, the temple is a way for us to really understand the big picture of the Bible. There's a lot of ways we can do this, and even just there at the end, you may have noticed, I just talked about the church as the temple of God, and, and Paul talks in Corinthians about how our, our own souls are, are dwelling places for the Holy Spirit, as if we individually are temples of the Lord. Uh, biblical theology doesn't always have perfectly clean-cut categories for things, but it, but it helps us to piece together the whole, and I, I think to really rejoice in the work of the Lord across his word. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this truth that uh, in Christ we come before you. There's no place we need to go. There's no thing we need to do, no ritual that we or someone else needs to fulfill for us. In fact, Christ is our high priest. He, he is our sacrifice. He is everything about the temple, and he is the temple itself. Because you, you delight to give what you command. And, and all of this, therefore, is of grace that we can come before you. We look at the law, we see the tabernacle, we see the expectations and the requirements, the measurements and all the, the specifications of your will and your design that your people might know you and walk with you. And we despair, rightly, because we can't live up to any of this. Your people fail miserably at this. We do too. But Lord, would you make us mindful of this, that we can come before you in Christ and all these things are fulfilled, all these requirements and, and rituals and regulations, the purity that we need to step before your throne, all of it is found in Jesus, and he delights to give it to us. Lord, thank you. I pray that you would minister to us through your word and help us to recall these things so that we can better understand what you have done for your people through the ages. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.